Hello, everybody. How are you doing today? Yeah, great. We got one person. Great. Everyone else is good. That's good. My name is Josh Pollard. I am the adult ministries pastor here at Renovation Church. I'm super excited to be with you this morning to worship uh, as a community. It's going to be great. Now, this summer, we have been studying uh, the book of me. It's the best book. Everyone says so, right? Can I get an amen on that? There we go. Actually, you can tell it's not about me because I could never grow a cool beard like that, whoever that was. So after service, we're going to lay hands right here <laughs> that we can get past the itch, right? Um, it's been a great study all summer. I've gained a lot from this study on the book of Joshua. Uh, I hope you have too. Uh, today in our study, we're going to get to one of the highest points in the whole book, and we're going to find it spread out actually over two different chapters. It's the part in the story where they actually get to the promised land. And we're going to see it spread out over Joshua chapter 5 and Joshua chapter 8. You see, in the book of Joshua, all the battles usually take the spotlight. And they take the attention away from this extremely important part of the whole story here. And we give a lot of attention over the whole narrative of God's promises to when he makes the promises to Abraham and to Moses. And then we give a lot of attention to the Exodus and them coming out of Egypt. We give a lot of attention to them being in the wilderness. But then for some reason, we don't give much attention to the very end of the story when it actually is all culminated and they actually inherit the promised land. Well, today I'm going to fix that for you. And we're going to take a closer look at this part of the story and look at the key points of it and see how those key points help us to interpret this section of scripture and the uh, influence that it should have on our daily lives today. So you can go ahead and open up your Bibles to Joshua chapter 5. And the Bible's under your chairs. It's on page 148. So go ahead and grab one of those, open it up. You're going to want to look at it. It's a longer passage, so you're going to want to follow along. And by the way, as you're looking at that, if you don't own a Bible, you can go ahead and keep that Bible under the chair. Those are for you guys. Uh, Or if you're sharing your faith with someone in your life these days, a neighbor or coworker, take that Bible and give it to them. That way they have a Bible to read. All right, now, as I start to read, remember, they just crossed over the Jordan River on dry land immediately before this, and they just got into the promised land. And then this is what happens. Starting at verse 2, the top of the second column there, big five, little two. It says, At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives and circumcise the Israelites again. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the Israelites at Gibeath Haraloth. Now this is why he did so. All those who came out of Egypt, all the men of military age, died in the wilderness on the way after leaving Egypt. All the people that came out had been circumcised, but all the people born in the wilderness during the journey from Egypt had not. The Israelites had moved about in the wilderness 40 years until all the men who were of military age when they left Egypt had died, since they had not obeyed the Lord. For the Lord had sworn to them that they would not see the land he had solemnly promised their ancestors to give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So he raised up their sons in their place, and these were the ones Joshua circumcised. They were still uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. And after the whole nation had been circumcised, they remained where they were in camp until they were healed. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. So the place has been called Gilgal to this day. On the evening of the 14th day of the month, while it camped at Gilgal on the plains of Jericho, the Israelites celebrated the Passover. The day after the Passover, that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land. 
unleavened bread and roasted grain. The manna stopped the day after they ate this food from the land. There was no longer any manna for the Israelites, but that year they ate the produce of Canaan. All right, let's pray before we get into this. Father, we thank you for today. Uh, We thank you for a chance to come together and to study your word, to look at it, and to seek your truth, uh, to remember who you are through your stories, and thank you for a chance to do that as a community. Um, We ask that you would help us to understand it clearly, to understand the power of your word and the uh, authority it has over our life. We ask you to help us see clearly who we are in light of this passage, who you are in light of this passage, and to live uh, in hopeful anticipation, in joyous anticipation of your return because of this story today. I ask for mercy as a speaker, uh, that you would speak through me today, and you make your truth clear. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so we get to this passage, and we see three major things come up right away in this passage. The first one, the whole first half is all about circumcision, which, side note, last time I preached Uh, my assigned text was on slavery, and now this one's on circumcision. I'm starting to think David is strategic about giving me the hard ones. So that's okay, though. We'll go with it. Circumcision, then we get to Passover, and then we get manna. And we're going to look at each one of these things in a little bit of detail. Circumcision, you guys, was a deeply meaningful symbol for the Israelites because it is the sign that sealed the covenant, the promise between God and Abraham. And this whole story starts back with that promise back in Genesis chapter 12, where God told Abram to leave his home, which was way out in the east of where Israel would eventually be, and to go to a land that God would give to him. And he set out from his original home, and the very next place we see him is in a place called Shechem. And it's here in Shechem that God tells Abraham, to your offspring I will give this land, and he built an altar there to the Lord. And the sign that sealed God's promise with Abraham was circumcision. Circumcision was to be an identifying mark for God's people down through the ages, but the generation that eventually left Egypt was a rebellious generation, constantly mistrusting God, even though they saw miracle after miracle of God's power and his presence in their life, they continually failed to trust and obey him in the wilderness. Even though they had the identifying mark of circumcision on their bodies to remind them that their future was already accounted for by God, that he's fulfilling his promise, they didn't believe it enough to pass it on to their kids. They were a mistrusting people. Now, of course, for Christians today, circumcision has no spiritual significance. People might do it for other reasons if they want to, but it should have nothing to do with your faith. But for the Israelites, it was immensely important to their relationship with God. So we had circumcision. Now, the second thing we came to was Passover. We've got to remember that Passover was a memorial celebration, a feast celebrating God delivering the Israelite people out of centuries, generations of violent, oppressive slavery from the Egyptians while he is judging those oppressors. And the Passover meal was a celebration remembering that. The Passover was the very last thing they did before they left Egypt, and it's one of the very first things they do when they get to where they're going. So their journey through the wilderness is incapped by this celebration of God's deliverance. So we get Passover. Now, we're going to get to the third one. Now, let's all, to make sure you're with me, let's all say them together. What was the first one? 
Okay, got y'all to say it. That's kind of funny. Circumcision. Then we got Passover. The third one, manna. So we got to manna. And manna, while they were going through the wilderness, God continually provided for them despite them continually grumbling against him. And so he sent this miraculous bread down from heaven that was just perfect for what they needed. It was truly a miracle. It was probably gluten-free because everyone could eat it, but it probably tasted good. So it was really a miracle. Continually provided for them. Not only did he provide physically because they needed to eat, but the plan was that they would collect what they needed each morning and it would go bad by night. So they collected again the next day. Except on Fridays, they'd collect twice as much so they didn't have to collect on Saturday. It was the Sabbath. They're supposed to rest. So God provided for them physically, but also enabled them to be obedient. He provided what they needed to follow him. And that manna sustained them through the wilderness for 40 years. But when they finally got to the promised land, they ate the food that was going to perpetually sustain them because of the fulfillment of God's promise and the manna suddenly stopped. So those are the three main things we see popping up in this verse. And the question I have is why these three things? Why not one? Why not three other things? And I think that the key to understanding these three things at this point in the story is found right there in verse 9. I hope you're still looking at it. In verse 9, God tells Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. So the place has been called Gilgal to this day. And that's because Gilgal sounds like the Hebrew word for rolled. So he rolled away the reproach from them. You see, the Israelite people had been carrying this reproach around with them. And reproach means something like disapproval or accusation or disappointment or shame. So until this time, they were carrying this identity of being shamed by Egypt. They were carrying Egypt's shame around with them. That's who they were. That's how they saw themselves. And they were carrying that around in reality. And God rolled that away. And I wonder about this shame. I wonder, how did they get this shame? I think that's important. I think there's two ways that we develop this sense of guiltiness, this sense of shame upon ourselves. And the first way that we do that is rightful shame of our sin. We develop this rightful shame of our sin. We've done something wrong that is rightfully worthy of disapproval. It's rightfully worthy of accusation and disappointment and shame. Don't do that. That's shameful. And we develop this understanding of it. And if we're not completely numb to the Holy Spirit, then we can feel him convicting us of it And helping us not to love our sin, he's helping us not to love the things that God does not love. And we call that being convicted by God. He makes us feel bad about it. We're not completely numb to him. And the Israelites, while they were in the wilderness, they did plenty of shameful things, you guys. They built idols. They accused God of doing terrible things. They said terrible things about him. They said he dragged them out into the wilderness to, to starve them out and just let them die. And they did these terrible things. And in a lot of ways, they took on this Egyptian identity. And so they carried this reproach of Egypt, this shame of Egypt upon themselves because they were willfully rebellious like the Egyptians. They didn't even circumcise their kids. They didn't even pass on the promise. And so they carried the shame of Egypt. They were becoming Egyptians in their souls. So that's the first way. Rightful shame of our sin that we develop, this sense of reproach. The second way that we develop this sense is not by anything we've done. It's by what others have done to us. 
Think of it like this. The Israelites were enslaved by the Egyptians for centuries. For generations, all they knew was this brutality. All they knew was this violence. They had no freedom. In the, in the last few generations, in fact, Pharaoh, the king of the Egyptians, made this decree that they were going to kill all the baby Hebrew boys so they didn't get too strong. And it was a decree that lasted for years that they had to sneak around just to survive. Even Moses just barely escaped that same fate thanks to the wits of his mother and his sister and the provision of God to fulfill his promises. But that's what they grew up under. For generations, perpetual abuse. And it developed this mindset of, of being covered in this feeling of guiltiness and shame, of worthlessness. And it can happen collectively. It can happen individually. Thanks to nothing at all that they did, but what someone else did to them. And in many ways, the Israelites carried this weight upon them. And they constantly had this defeatist attitude in the wilderness. That we are a defeated people. It's all we've been for generations. It's how our family developed into the tribes we are today was through defeat. We are being defeated. So why get our hopes up? Why dare to hope that it's going to work out in the end? Why dare to hope that the promise will be fulfilled? And we'll actually get to this promised land when all we've ever known is defeat and violence and subjugation and oppression. That's who we are. And so they carried this reproach of Egypt around their necks like a weight that pulled them down. But then we get to verse 9. And nothing they did removed this reproach. Nothing they did built themselves up. What does it say? It says, God rolled it away. He said, today I have rolled away this reproach of Egypt. God changed them. You see, having them circumcise themselves, he was giving them their true identity back as God's people. As people of the promise people whose future and heritage could never be forgotten because as every generation was conceived, they'd be reminded in the most intimate of ways that their heritage and their family was only because of God himself. It was a testament to God's faithfulness to his promises. And his promise was not just a gift of land, it was the gift of an identity. And so many people these days are searching for identity. They want to know who they are. One of the greatest gifts God gives to his people is identity. They are his people. That's who they are. They are no longer children of the wilderness. They are no longer people who don't know who they are. They are God's people. And then he has them celebrate the Passover to remember that he makes a way for his people. That when you are God's, he takes care of you, even when you grumble. And then he transitions from providing for them with this placeholder of manna to this ongoing produce of the promised land that will be perpetual because they are God's people, because of their identity. That identity is the greatest gift God gives us. Don't search for your identity in anything else. Search for it in God. You are no longer slaves, he tells these people. He says, you are no longer wanderers. You are no longer children of the wilderness. You are my people. So roll off your old identity and take on your true identity as my people. And that changes everything in the story. You guys, when we become God's children, he rolls away the reproach and shame of our past. He doesn't want you to be identified by your past. He doesn't want you to be identified with your sin 
that you should rightfully be ashamed of or your trauma that you carry around like a weight, that is not our identity anymore when we are in Christ. Amen, yes? Come on. The book of John tells us, if the Son set you free, you are free indeed. When we are set free from the past, we are given a whole new identity. So often I hear about people struggling, struggling with sin, struggling with their past, struggling with trauma. But as Christians, we are free from that struggle. And at some point, we have to realize the power of our God that we serve to give new identities. And we have to move from struggling to freedom. We have to move from seeing ourselves as being oppressed to being victorious. Our Christ has crushed the head of Satan under his foot, Scripture says. And we are no longer slaves to his temptation. We are no longer able to be accused by him, able to be shamed by him. But so often we forget that. And we just settle for getting by. We identify ourselves with worldly things, with worldly struggles, and we just struggle through. But there is no just getting by in God's kingdom. Second Timothy says, God has given us a spirit not of fear. He's given us a spirit of power and of love and of self-control. Don't ever forget that. That is your identity. Do not identify with your fear. Do not identify with your struggle. Identify with the spirit God has given you, a spirit of power, a spirit of love, a spirit of self-control. That is your identity. Let it strengthen you. Let it encourage you. Now, of course, that doesn't mean just because we have this identity that there's not going to be battles to fight along the way. But we know those battles are already won. See, sometimes though, we face these challenges in life and we keep this identity of reproach, this identity of struggling. But remember that God has given you the identity of someone that's going to fight battles to follow him, but they know they're going to be victorious in the end. That's what we see in the book of Joshua. You see, back, Joshua was the apprentice of Moses. And so before they got to the promised land, Moses gave Joshua and the Israelites some instructions on what they were supposed to do once they got into the promised land. He told them, when you get in the promised land, you're going to go to Mount Ebal. And when you get to Mount Ebal, you're going to build an altar on it. And then you're going to burn some offerings on it. And then you're going to have half the tribe stand in front of Mount Ebal. You're going to have the other half of the tribe stand on Mount Gerizim. And you're going to have the Ark of God right in the middle there. And you're going to read the law of Moses to all the people. And that would be the official culmination of the inheritance of the promised land. But there was a problem with that. And you can see that problem if you look at this map. You see, they crossed over the Jordan River there across from Jericho, and they camped in this field, and then they named the field Gilgal because of what God had done, because he rolled the reproach of Egypt away from them there. But then, to get to Mount Gerizim, or Mount Ebal up there, uh, it was about a 30-mile journey, and there's a couple of enemy cities along the way. You got Jericho, and you got Ai. And you see, both of these cities would turn into major battles that they would have to face as they live into their reclaimed identity as God's people and tried to be obedient to what he told them to do. 
And we've preached on both these battles in the last few weeks, so I'm not going to go into deep detail. You can check out our website has those ones if you want to go back and listen to those. But I will say that both of these battles were won by trusting God and putting him first in all ways and doing it his way. At Jericho, the first one there, they just marched around the city for seven days until God made the walls crumble. And then they won that battle easily. I think so many of the battles we face in Christian life are won just by doing what God says. God said, just walk. They just walk, and the walls came down. So many times in Scripture, we can see instructions on how to win the battles we face. And if we would just approach those battles as things we know we will win, if we just do it God's way, then we would fight much differently. We would fight with humility and with confidence, not fear and not despair and hopelessness or perpetual shame. We wouldn't have to suffer with reproach. We would fight with confidence. You see, after this battle at Jericho, one of the soldiers there stole some of the plunder that God told them not to take, and it caused them to suffer a defeat when they got to Ai. And this soldier gave in to temptation. He didn't trust God. He didn't do it God's way. And because of that, there was serious consequences. You know, people died. A lot of people died because of that. And the people of Israel had to sort that all out and they had to get rid of those stolen items and they had to work at being seriously obedient to God. And then they won the battle of Ai. And you see, having that new identity alone is not enough to win the battles. God will fight your fights for you, but you have to do it his way. It doesn't work to say, I'm a child of God now. I belong to God. And then I'm going to do it my way. And then you expect him to bless that, to fight that way. He fights this way. It didn't work for the Israelites, and it won't work for you. So don't try that. Just because we know the battles are already won, and we know that God is true to complete his promises, it doesn't mean that there still isn't going to be a fight to be obedient to God, to follow God. There's a fight there. So whatever you're facing, don't struggle with it. Fight with confidence in God's ways. Don't say, my marriage is really struggling right now. Say, I am fighting for my marriage, and I know we will win that fight if we do it God's way. We will win. Don't say, I'm struggling with temptation again. Say, I am fighting against temptation, and I know I will be victorious over it because Jesus has set me free indeed. Don't struggle with anxiety. Don't struggle with depression Say you are fighting it. Jesus is fighting for you and you know you'll be delivered from it because it's already promised and you know you will win in the end. Fight. Don't struggle. Fight. Fight with confidence. Fight with humble dependence on God who's the provider of that deliverance. God who is the provider of our victory, the provider of our freedom. Our old identity was one of struggling under bondage, but our new identity is one of fighters who have a guaranteed victory in the end. Come on. Amen? So finally, they get through those battles 
and they get to Mount Ebal. They're fighting to obey God. And we get there in chapter 8. And they get to do everything that Moses has instructed them to complete their inheritance of the land. And we're going to pick up our reading there in Joshua chapter 8. Find it on page 151. We're going to start in verse 30. Chapter 8, verse 30. It says, Then Joshua built on Mount Ebal an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel. As Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the Israelites, he built it according to what is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones on which no iron tool had been used. On it, they offered to the Lord burnt offerings and sacrificed fellowship offerings. There, in the presence of the Israelites, Joshua wrote on stones a copy of the law of Moses. All the Israelites, with the elders, officials, and judges, were standing on both sides of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, facing the Levitical priests who carried it. Both the foreigners living among them and the native-born were there. Half of the people stood in front of Mount Gerizim, and half of them in front of Mount Ebal, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had formally commanded when he gave instructions to bless the people of Israel. Afterward, Joshua read all the words of the law, the blessings and the curses, just as it is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses had commanded that Joshua did not read to the whole assembly of Israel, including the women and the children and the foreigners who lived among them. Now, it might seem kind of hard to imagine all these people spread out on this mountain over here and all these people spread out on that mountain over there and them hearing this law of Moses read to them. Kind of hard to get that in your mind. But I want to show you a picture that will help you see this because this is the culmination of the Abrahamic covenant. Very important scene in this part of the story. It's a very high point in the whole Old Testament that often we miss. So I want to show you a picture that will help you to visualize and get this in your mind. Here is a modern-day picture, obviously because they didn't have cameras back then, of a picture of Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. And you can see that they're actually kind of just small hills, and they're pretty close together. And people that go there can testify. That they'll tell you that it kind of makes this natural amphitheater. And so it's actually totally realistic to, for someone to stand there in the middle where that city is, and for everyone on those hills to be able to hear what's going on when the conditions are right. And so that little town down in the crux of the hills there uh, is where the Ark of the Covenant would have been and where Joshua would have been reading the blessings and the cursings of the law to fulfill the inheritance of the promised land. And what is the most amazing part of this whole story is that little town right there is Shechem. That's where the whole story started. You guys remember Shechem? back in Genesis 12? See, that is the exact spot where God promised Abraham, to your descendants, I will give this land. And then 500 years later, we get all 12 tribes of descendants from that man in this exact spot, officially inheriting the land, building an altar on it. God's true to his promises in detail. And he didn't just give them land. He gave them a new identity as God's people. And he gave them clear expectations, blessings and curses on how to live as God's people. What a great day in the history of the world at Shechem. 
And now, for us as Christians today, we can continue to study the scriptures and we can see that Joshua leading God's people into the promised land was just a foreshadowing of Jesus leading God's people into the promised kingdom. You see, we were once all children of the wilderness and we were lost, we were wandering, we were rebellious against God and we did not have an identity. But he provided a way for us anyway, even though we grumbled along the way. And for the Christians in the room, we have a very special way to remember that, to celebrate that. Instead of celebrating Passover, like the Israelites did, to remember that God made a way for them to be free, free from slavery and bondage. He brought them out of that and into God's promise. So they celebrate the Passover, but we celebrate communion to remember that God made a way for all people to be free from the ultimate slavery of sin and to be free from bondage, to be free from that suffering identity and free to live life to the fullest with God, with him. We Christians are no longer identified by our past sin and trauma, but we are identified by our deliverance from that. We are the delivered people. Our battle is already won for us, and we will fight along the way, but we already know the outcome, and so we celebrate the day of victory as we anticipate Christ's return for us. And so, if you're a Christian here, if you have put your faith in Christ, if you follow him, if you are sold out to him, then you can examine yourself and if you can genuinely say, that I am not harboring resentment or against anyone other, any other Christians in the church, but we are unified, then we can celebrate a unified remembrance of Christ's sacrifice for our sins and his promise to come back. But scripture is also clear that if you are currently at odds with anyone else, that you should hold off on this and go smooth things over. It's better to hold off on celebrating the unity of Christ's body than, and have animosity against someone else than to hold off and go clear things up and then come back and be unified. So if you can examine yourself and you need to do that, just hold off and go clear things up. But if you can examine yourself and you are unified with everyone else in the room, then we're going to celebrate communion together. It's a beautiful gift God has given us in communion. So go ahead and grab that little cup under the chair in front of you. And open up the bread and hold that little piece up. And scripture says that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he was celebrating his very last Passover meal. And he took a piece of bread and he said to his disciple, this is my body and it's given for you and for you and for you, for you. And this is your new identity, right? We are the body of Christ. He says, this is my body given for you. Take it and eat in remembrance of me. So let's eat the bread. And now, on that same night, he took a glass of wine at the Passover meal and he said, this is my blood spilled for the sins of many. It is the blood of the new covenant and I will not drink it again until I drink it with you in my kingdom. Take it and drink it in remembrance of me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that you've made a way for us 
that you watched us grumble in our sin, but you grabbed us and you told us who we were. We thank you that you softened our hearts to, to accept that, to realize that, to trust who you say we were, to say who we are. We thank you for giving us the gift of communion to celebrate and remember that. Uh, we thank you for this part of the story of what you've done in the world to remind us that you are a God who keeps his promises, a God who gives identity, a God who, whose truth is more strong than what we think our truth is. So we thank you for that. We praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.